Welcome to church, everybody. How are you? You're good? You're good? We've been talking about Jesus and money. Actually, no, no, no. We've been talking about what Jesus said about money because Jesus talked about, now this is, here we go, hear hear me me clearly. Jesus spoke about money, possessions, wealth, right? In that, in that that big broad category, he talked about that topic more than any other topic, period. Period. End of story. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's staggering the number of times. But, but the way he talked about it is very different than, a way, than the way a lot of us have heard it talked about. Money, money gets talked about in the world in, in ways that, that seem negative, shaming, sort of oppressive. Money is talked about as a, as a burden. Jesus did not do that. I mean, no, let's be clear. Jesus spoke the truth, and, and, and Jesus oftentimes could cut to the truth, and so sometimes it was a little startling how true he spoke about things, but, but he never did it as a way to shame. And, and, and I believe, and I have now for these many weeks, tried to offer Jesus on money in a way that, in a way that, that wasn't like, like, like rooted in shame and instead was, was freeing. And I'd like to continue to do that. I invite you to turn in the scriptures with me to, uh, to, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 17. Of course, this is the first of the five discourses that Matthew has, has aggregated and pushed together. And uh, this, these are the teachings of Jesus. Matthew, uh, I think, is offering to them, us to them uh, grouped together in, in particular ways. This is the first of those five, and we know this first one, it's really the most famous, uh, as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what Jesus says. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you that I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. Not a title I'm interested in inheriting, right? But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for we the people of God and we say together, thanks be to God. I have not come to undo what they did. That's what he says. I have not come to reverse what was set into motion. I have not come to do away with. I have not come to abolish. Instead, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill. That, that none of it's going to be abolished. None of it's going to be abolished. And yet, and yet, we have heard, we have heard folks say, yeah, I don't know that that law applies anymore. We, we, have, we have heard folks say, I... Maybe, maybe you've heard it sound this way. Maybe they haven't used that sentence. Maybe you've heard, you know, but the thing is, the world has really changed. 
So I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure that applies like it used to. Anybody, just, just real quick to get me kind of going, just everybody sort of say amen if you agree that the world would suggest that because things have changed that maybe some of the rules need to change too. Everybody say amen to that? You guys, you guys, so we're, we're, we're good so far, right? So Jesus says, Jesus says, no, it's not, not like that. And yet, and yet, hear me, the world has changed. What, what do we do, what do we do with the changes and this passage of Scripture? I would suggest that what Jesus is saying is that the truth remains. The truth remains. Earlier this summer, um, through, uh, th- through the power of social media, J- Jack um, got uh, hooked up with um, the Middle Georgia Tennis Center in Perry. It's uh, off an industrial road just down south of uh, Westfield. It's like 14 hours from our house, but we, we've been driving down there about once a week or so, and, and then Sam got um, hooked up with it, and, I, and of course, you guys actually, I think most of you all know me, and so if the boys are doing it, then I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of interested too, and so after they had been taking lessons for a little bit, I, uh, I came to Val, um, uh, and um, I came to Val and said, hey, can, can I take lessons too? I'm off on Mondays, can I take lessons too? And, and Val said, sure. And so my first ever private lesson in tennis, going back to when I picked up tennis in high school, my first ever private lesson with Val, um, because, because it worked with his schedule and, 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 and my schedule and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I've hit like two balls and he goes, what do you have in your hand? Right? The, and the, most of this part of the sermon is only for David, um, and uh, because you know David understands. He, David, he says, "What do you have in your hand?" And I was like, "Well, this is my tennis racket." And I'm thinking he's about to brag on it because my parents paid a couple bucks for this thing, you know, um, back in '91 when they got it for me. And he goes, "I mean, that was a nice racket then." <laughs> so that was like 30 years ago. Val's uh, Val's 70 years old. And so uh, he, was, he was a good tennis player back then. He's still a good tennis player. And he said that was like, he was like, they don't even make graphite rackets anymore. They don't even make those. And I'm like, well, okay, you're kind of hurting my feelings. He was like, well, you just got to get a better racket because, because the technology, right? The technology's come so far that th- this doesn't work anymore. And I was like, okay, okay, so I'm working on the racket. But, so we're out there, and, and I've got the old racket, and I'll, I'll get a new one. Um, I, I found one in a used uh, sports store, and, uh, but w- I don't know. We've hit, we've hit 10 balls, and, 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 and the balls would come to me, and I would turn completely sideways like I had been taught, and I had been teaching my boys this all, you know, for, for years now. I'd turn completely sideways because, because tennis is like baseball, and you have to line your feet up with what you're about to do, right? This is how I was doing it, and I'm telling you, we're like 12, 15 balls into the, to the lesson, and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm lining my feet up perfectly, aren't I? And he goes, no, no, no. They did that 30 years ago. He's, and he's actually very nice. He's very nice. Um, I'm not even doing a good impression, am I, Sam? I mean, no, he's, he said, no, 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 that's not how you do it. He said, in the 90s, this is the way he described it, and maybe David can, can verify this. In the 90s, they changed from, from this closed stance to an open stance. He said, the balls come too fast now. The players are, are too powerful now. You've got you've to learn to hit with an open stance. And my mind is blown. Because, because the technology and the game had changed, therefore the tactics had to change. 
you, you, you saw me write in the bulletin last week, for those of you who read the little front section, I, I wrote that, uh, that I'd have the chance this past week to go off to a conference uh, that I had just learned about and signed up for. I, I, I flew up on Monday morning into Baltimore, and then, and then Robert, a dear friend of mine, Methodist preacher down in, in, in Albany, uh, we, we took a rental car up into Pennsylvania where we spent the next four days on the giant hallowed grounds of Gettysburg. Where the, where the battle was fought on July the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 1863. We're, we're there for a few hours when, when the, the participants in the group with the instructor are all, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm in, because I'm, we'd, we'd, we'd done homework ahead of time, we'd watched the movies, we'd read the books and, and, and studied the history all before we ever arrived. And, and, and the question that we're dying to know is that, is that how, how and why are, are the soldiers of both sides walking so closely together and suffering such massive casualties? This is, this is our question on the first day. Because we're, we're learning that there are tens of thousands. There's literally a hundred and something thousand soldiers engaged. There are tens of thousands that are marching division and division, division, core by core by core into and just getting just, just devastated casualties everywhere. Why, why is that still, why is that happening? Drew, you can, I mean, you can appreciate some of this because this is, this is the history of it. And this is what Jay Lorenzen, he's a re- retired KC-135 Air Force navigator and b- become historian and buff and leadership kind of uh, consultant for folks. This is what he explained. He said that by the time of the Civil War, the tactics of the Napoleonic era now, it took me a second to understand all this. The tactics of the Napoleonic era from, from, a, from 100, 200 years before that. The tactics of massing your soldiers together to, 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 to make, have the greatest impact had not changed despite the fact that technology had. And what we would go on to learn is that, is that 100 years before, all of the weaponry was smooth bore. The cannons and the muskets, they would, they would, they would fire a, a, a round shot, whether it be a cannonball or a musket ball, they'd fire a round shot, and, the, and, and it would fly as best it could. But, but then, in the last hundred years before the Civil War, they had introduced something called rifling. You know this, right? Everybody, everybody, Rifling, which, which says inside of the bore, you, t- you take and you groove out. And the bore that's rifled fires with such accuracy, both for cannons and for muskets. I didn't know this, but at the time of the Civil War, a rifled cannon could fire accurately up to 1.5 miles. Miles! Easily within a mile. Easily with them out. And yet, and yet here they are grouping with old tactics. And they've missed the, the update in the technology. You see, I think the world has massively changed. And I think that I think that tactics need to be updated. But I do believe the truths remain. To not update the tactics is to find ourselves on, 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 on the losing side. And yet, 
to disregard the truths is also to find ourselves on the losing side. What, what does this have to do with, with, with Jesus talking about money? I believe, I believe that the tithe, this is how I want to land the plane for this month. I believe that the tithe was not a tactic of the Old Testament or even the New Testament. I, I believe the tithe was not a tactic that somehow got surpassed when, when the world or technology changed. I believe the tithe is rooted in a truth. Something I've been saying more and more often in the last few years is that, is that I fundamentally believe that everything can be used by God to grow our trust in him. When, 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 when couples come to me and ask that I would officiate their wedding, I always say, well, we're going to have to meet ahead of time. We'll do, we'll, I'll give you some homework. We'll talk through it. I want to get to know you more. We want to plan the ceremony. But I, but I also want to pass along what, what, what I believe is my obligation to talk about marriage. And this is one of the things I say every single time now. Every single time. At some point in the conversation, I'll say, listen, listen. Marriage is a gift of God to grow our trust in him. And you've heard me say, when, 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 when I have the chance to, 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 to meet parents with new babies or, or when I have a chance to communicate with them, my, my best friend from earlier this year, growing up in high school, had his first child and I'm talking to him and I've seen him face to face since then and I've said, look, look, remember, look, just like marriage, children are a gift from God used to grow our trust in him. I believe the same thing about money and possessions. I believe everything can be. But now remember, God's not a bully. God's not a tyrant. God does not force God's self on anybody. But if we would allow it, God uses all of these blessings and gifts to grow our trust in him. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets. So what was he talking about? I got, I got one screen one screen real quick, one slide. It just, it's just real simple, straightforward. Tithes were given by the early patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob. Those are just two of a, a, a bunch of examples. Moses instituted tithing in the law, multiple places in the law, extensively. And then the prophets later on, in between these, these early patriarchs, early giant prophets of the scriptures, the prophets leading up to Jesus would rebuke the children of Israel for failing to give the tithe to God. You see one example there, there are others too. Uh, Jesus says, I came not to abolish, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. He goes on to say, not one single, not one single, like, crossed T or dotted I will get erased before all of it comes true. He's, 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 saying that, that, he's saying that the truth remains. At one point, what is it, uh, M- Matthew chapter 6? One point in Matthew chapter 6, he says, and you guys know this verse, I don't even have to get out my Bible. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's he he saying? He's saying, if if you will put your trust in me with your possessions, your heart will follow it. 
I, I don't know, I don't know where the idea of a church in Bonaire was first uttered. I've thought about it. You could make the argument that um that, that it might have happened that it might have happened in a, in a church council meeting. Maybe finance, stewardship, maybe, maybe, maybe trustees or SPR, I don't know, you know. You could make that argument. I don't think that's right. You, you can make the argument that it happened in a pulpit, that, that, that the preacher expounding on, on, on the Great Commission said, we need to have a church in, in Bon Air. You can make that argument. I, I happen to think, this is just my opinion, I've thought about it a little while, I happen to think, based on what we know, that the first time the idea of a Methodist church in Bon Air was ever uttered happened outside of the churchyard where the women and the men were talking together and the kids were playing under feet and they were all leaning up against their buggies and their wagons. Because what we know from history is that in late 1893 and early 1894, far, far away at a Methodist church in Sandy Run, if you think about it, you'll understand that's not far away. The church had the idea that, that an advanced team should be sent one train stop down the road for the purpose of gathering families together in Bon Air. See, because here's, here's, here's the truth that remains. God is sovereign. Jesus is Lord. And we're called to care for each other by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the church up there said, we need that happening in Bon Air. And so, and so sure enough, the, the preacher and a group were, were sent one train stop down. And they got off the train and they walked west, I don't know, 300 yards. They ended up right over there, underneath some trees. They've been having church here ever since. But, but the tactics have changed, right? They, they ended up building a building instead of using a tent. They ended, up, they ended up leaving church in the afternoon by car instead of by horse or by buggy, Right? The tactics have changed, but the truth remains. The truth is we are still a people who send each other out so that families would hear about Jesus while also caring for our own family here. This is the truth. The the truth remains. The tactics might change. God has called us to place our trust in him. And I believe that the tithe is one of the ways we do that. I want to say two things quickly before I'm done. Two, 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 two hopeful, encouraging words. First, God doesn't make this impossible to achieve. Nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the scriptures does it say, if you're not tithing today, you've got to be by tomorrow. Nowhere does it say that. It doesn't say that. What we have found instead is that, uh, uh, is that, is that we can grow our trust in him by steps, by, 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 by simple degrees. The first, the first job I ever had in the church as a youth minister, I passed across a card in the church administrator's office and said, I, I want to I have this much committed to the church. And it was a small amount. It wasn't close to 10%. It was probably more like 1% or 2%. And she received it. 
And Julie and I got married a, a year or so later, and, uh, and, and, and sure enough, um, we, we started that, that first fall writing down a number, and it wasn't, it wasn't one, I mean, it wasn't 10%. It was much smaller than that. But then the next year, we, we increased the number because it worked out, and the next year, we increased the number because it worked out, and, 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 and by the third or fourth year, we find ourselves going, you know, I, I don't know how it works out, but it always works out. And within a few years, we find ourselves giving 10%. And now, now we're able to do more than that. Why? Because what we found is that if we trust God with that first 10% or more, God delivers somehow. It's an, it's an economy that I do not understand, and yet, and yet God's economy works. That's the, that's, the, that's, that's the two things I want you to hear. Is that you move from zero to 60 like that you can move gradually and number two is that i'm not asking you to do something that we're not doing and the only reason we're doing it is because it's the truth and it remains god calls us to trust him with what we have that we might find ourselves faithful the truth remains the tactics the technology even the world. But the truth remains, and we are a people who are grounded in the truth. I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be your pastor here. Let's pray. Gracious God, for your grace that does not offer a commandment without equally offering the strength, the courage, the path, the means by which we can fulfill it. Lord, you have given us these truths that we might live in to who we're called to be. Not, not out of, not out of uh, your sense of shame, not out of your sense of forcefulness, but out of your great love for us. Help us to use your grace that our trust in you might grow. We thank you for those who've come before us, who's made a, who've made a way for us, We thank you for those whose faithfulness has brought us here. May we be the church that goes out to gather families while also caring for our own. This is our prayer. We ask you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.